much. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman, along with Joe Jordan and Tommy Martin. Coming up this hour, an interview with Mark Jacobson, professor of engineering at Stanford University and author of The Solutions Project, a roadmap for getting the U.S. completely off fossil fuels by 2050. Also, we'll hear from Dave Sugar, CEO of Nextracker, a solar company making big strides in the field of alternative energy. Plus news, science trivia, quizzes, and experiments. If you want to ask our guests any questions, you can always write to radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And in this case, um, you can ask us questions at the same place. So thank you so much for tuning in, and welcome to Joe and Tommy. Thanks for being here. Hi, Rachel and everybody. By the way, that second uh, interview is with Dan Sugar. Oh. His son, David Sugar, uh, went to UCSC, though, and mm-hmm. I think he's down at Mar- Mardi Gras right now. Well, first the news, as we do, we do a news roundup, and then we'll go to a couple of interviews of people who are right on the cutting edge of alternative energy, and pretty soon they say it will not be called alternative at all, but it will be called mainstream energy, because according to their plans, they will be transitioning us and helping us transition uh, to 100% renewable energy by the year 2050, which, by the way, is not that much farther in the future as it used to be. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, you want to do the first uh, news item here? NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope has revealed the first known system of seven Earth-sized planets around a single star. Three of these planets are firmly located in the habitable zone, the area around the parent star where a rocky planet is most likely to have liquid water, essential for life as we know it. This discovery sets a new record for greatest number of habitable zone planets found around a single star outside our solar system, so-called extrasolar planets. All these seven planets could have liquid water, key to life as we know it, under the right atmospheric conditions, but the chances are highest with the three in the habitable zone. And that phrase, habitable zone, reminds me of uh, when I was working at NASA Ames, we put on the first international conference on circumstellar habitable zones. And I remember that especially because Carl Sagan, the late, great Carl Sagan, was there during a break during that conference. I was talking to him about that stuff, and I was actually working for quite a while at NASA Ames on the search for extrasolar planets. There are a couple different ways of detecting them. We were using a method that uh, involves eclipses or occultations of parts of stars by planets actually passing in front of stars. But there are other ways to do that, too. So anyway, story with a little bit of a personal uh, touch there. And my first thought when I read that was, um, I hope it's far enough away so that by the time we develop the technology to get there, we're a lot nicer to planets. Just a thought. (laughs) Uh, Ever wonder why you seem to have inherited your dad's propensity to be anxious or moody or your mom's ability to do really good crossword puzzles in the New York Times? Well, it turns out our body cells prefer one parent's DNA over the others when it comes to creating brain cells. A new study from scientists at the University of Utah School of Medicine shows that it is not uncommon for cells in the brain to preferentially activate one copy of DNA over the other. Sorry, mom. Sorry, Dad, I picked you, you know, I liked you better, I don't know. It's not really choosing. So that's the interesting question is, is it choosing? Why would you, why would it happen? They did not explain the why of this story. The finding breaks basic tenets of classic genetics and suggests new ways in which genetic mutations might cause brain disorders. So next time you blame your parents for your grades or your procrastination, remember... 
make sure you're blaming the right parent. <laughs> Tommy, you got something for yeah. us there? Uh, according to Science Daily, a major study conducted by the Stockholm Environment Institute at the University of York found that in 2010, about 2.7 million preterm births globally, or 18% of all preterm births, were associated with outdoor exposure to fine particulate matter, uh, 2.5 micrometers in diameter. These small particulates are especially dangerous to humans as they can penetrate deep into the lungs. The study found that India and China accounted for nearly 1.5 million of the 2.7 million global total preterm births associated with these fine particulates. Um, Sub-Saharan desert and Middle East regions also had particularly high numbers with exposure from desert dust having a large contribution. Really interesting. We often think of particulate matter as causing asthma and other lung cancers and things, but in this case, it's something completely, supposedly unrelated, preterm births. Yeah. That's really interesting. Those are the human effects. Could, could I add a little interpretation there? The PM 2.5 means particulate matter, 2.5 microns or millionths of a meter. If you look at a meter stick, the tiniest divisions on there, there's a thousand of them, are the millimeters. Imagine trying to see something that's a thousandth of one of those. That would be a millionth of a meter. <laughs> and wow. just for reference, uh, the wavelength of green light is about a half a micron. So but That's anyway. why they can go deeply into your lungs right, and probably right, into right. your bloodstream instead of just staying in your lungs. And um, <clears throat> that also brings up the issue of, you know, you can regulate or you can have California be the greenest state and the least pollution on Earth. But these... Um, particulates travel in the upper atmosphere and end up in, you know, from China they end up here, so we can't exactly build a bubble around California and expect to stay safe unless the rest of the world follows our great example of being a clean state. Yeah, it's a global so, problem. It really is. Well, here's another one that could be. Uh, <clears throat> Scott Pruitt, as many of you know, uh, was confirmed last week, and following that was supposed to be preceding that, but because the... Um, it was being stalled. The emails between Pruitt and the fossil fuel industry were released, finally, showing a relationship that was beyond cozy. As Oklahoma's Attorney General, Pruitt closely coordinated with major oil and gas producers, electric utilities, and political groups with ties to the libertarian billionaire brothers, the Koch brothers, to roll back environmental regulations, according to over 6,000 pages of emails made public on Wednesday. He even allowed one oil company to write a letter for him, which he then signed his name to and submitted as his own to Congress. While addressing the CPAC conference last week, Pruitt told the conservative audience they would be, quote, justified in believing the EPA would be completely disbanded. The EPA, by the way, is the main agency protecting our air, water, ecosystems, and public health from industrial pollution. You know, I remember a big stink being raised last fall about somebody's emails who's not president now. Well, okay, here's a real story about emails that uh, maybe we ought to be paying attention to. Anyway, okay, here we go. Uh, sort of a good news story. <clears throat> One of the West's biggest coal-fired power plants will be closed down a quarter of a century ahead of schedule, 25 years ahead of schedule, citing the cheaper cost of natural gas... You know, which has its own problems, but hey, owners of Arizona's Navajo generating stations say they will shut the plant down early to save money. The Peabody Coal Company announced it would shutter the plant in 2019 
taking some 20 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent out of the air, plus 8.6 million metric tons of actual CO2, as well as a whole bunch of other stuff, and we'll <laughs> sort of like ordered pairs here, 470-some pounds of mercury, 4,300 pounds of selenium, and just under 260 pounds of arsenic, respectively, that spew from the power plant's smokestacks each year will be deleted from our uh, effluent stream now. <clears throat> so that's good. It's good news. Uh, the only difficult part will be for the Navajo and Hopi uh, nations, which got a pretty hefty cut of uh, the proceeds from the purchase of coal and from the licensing um, hmm. of the power plant on their property. So that's going to have to be made up for because it's a lot of jobs. But as we say, mm -hmm. the jobs come at a huge cost, as we just heard, to public health. So you can't always externalize those costs. But on to a more cheerful subject. We're really lucky, um, all three of us, to be at the UC Santa Cruz Climate Conference over the weekend. That was just yesterday. And one of the panelists we spoke with um, in our special recording room they had very graciously set up for us was Mark Jacobson. And Mark Jacobson is inventor of the Solutions Project. He is a Stanford engineer, inventor, and um, amazing person. He's on many, many boards of many universities. Um, and his biggest claim to fame lately is coming up with a plan to transition the United States from its dependence on fossil fuels in just a few scant decades to 100% renewables. So we spoke with him in this upcoming interview, and it was a really interesting dialogue. Just a, just a quick preview note that uh, segues from what Rachel just said at the end of that last story about the closing down of the power plant costing some people jobs in the Southwest. Well, you know, there's always that raised, but hey, we got to come up with new, better jobs, and this, uh, these two interviews you're about to hear deal with that very topic. Right, and we have the first one uh, with Mark Jacobson right now. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman here with Joe Jordan, and we're here at the UCSC Climate Conference, and I'm very excited to be speaking with one of the panelists, Mark Jacobson. He is Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University. He's also a Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment, and we're very excited to have him here on the program. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Very excited to talk to you. You have something called the Solutions Project, which I'm really curious to learn about. It's got a huge and very ambitious goal to turn us all over in the United States to 100% renewable energy by 2050. How are we going to get there? Well, our idea is to electrify everything and then provide that electricity with clean renewable energy, namely wind and water and solar power. So when I say electrify everything, I mean transportation, heating, cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, fishing. We want to convert those, those energy sectors from burning fossil fuels, like convert, for example, gasoline and diesel cars and trucks to electric cars and trucks and some hydrogen fuel cell electric hybrids for long distance shipping and trucking and aircraft. And then in heating, cooling, reduce heat pumps instead of gas heaters for air and water heating. We'd use induction cooktop stoves instead of gas stoves. And for high temperature and industrial processes, instead of using oil and coal for high temperature heat, we would use existing technology, induction furnaces, arc, electric arc furnaces, these are all electric technologies. And we provide all the electricity, including in the electric power sector, with onshore and offshore wind, 
concentrated solar power where you focus light off of a mirror onto a central tower to heat a fluid. The fluid can then be stored overnight and then used when you need it to heat water, to evaporate water, and the water then runs a steam turbine. The water vapor then runs a steam turbine to generate electricity. That's called concentrated solar power. Also, we'd have solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants. These are the solar panels that you've all seen. And geothermal power where for electricity, where you have basically get hot rocks underground and pass water by it to uh, heat the water and then use the water to evaporate it. The water gets evaporated to run a turbine to generate electricity. And we'll use existing hydroelectric power and small amounts of tidal and wave power. And we think we can power, in fact, not only all the states in the United States, but all the countries of the world, just with wind and water and solar power for all purposes. Do you get pushback of people saying that's um, too ambitious or unrealistic given 30 years is, you know, 33 years is a long uh, time? Yeah, I, got, I actually get pushback on both sides. I say, I get pushback by saying, oh, this is a pie in the sky, this is infeasible, uh, we can never do it by then. And then I also have another contingent of people say, this is not fast enough, we can do this faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so what do you say to both of those critics? <laughs> well, our timeline is basically trying to convert 80% by 2030 and 100% by 2050. And I think that timeline is actually technically and economically feasible. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's, I think that's actually tractable. I think to get 100% by 2030, which is what some people would like, I don't think is possible. I mean, I think it's, it's technically possible, and even economically, but socially and politically, it's not possible. And there are certain technologies like long-distance aircraft and long-distance ships that we have to trans transition to. And I just don't think that we can transition the entire fleet of aircraft, which is 33 million civilian aircraft flights every year worldwide. I don't think we can transition those by 2030 to uh, all high hydrogen fuel cell electrics. But I think by 2050, we can. I mean, this technology is, is there in terms of fuel cells. We've used hydrogen in the space shuttle before. So it's really putting two and two together to make fuel cell long distance. Aircraft. Actually, uh, hydrogen is going to be a topic on a future Planet Watch show. But what's your uh, crystal ball for a really good environmentally and economically practical way to make hydrogen? I mean, electrolyzing water, you know, by hydropower or you know, natural gas or something is how we do it now. But uh, it's got to be something better in the future. What do, you, what do you got in mind? Well, we would use electrolysis, but only with... Uh, clean renewable energy. So only wind, solar, some hydroelectric power, geothermal power, or tidal wave power. And we'd only really need it from when we have too much wind and too much solar, because part of this whole puzzle is to match power demand on the grid with supply of by wind and solar, which are what are called intermittent renewable energies. The wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. So in order to match power demand on the grid, you either need storage to store the wind when there's too much wind or too much solar, and then you store it in uh, different ways. You can store it in what's called pumped hydroelectric power. Concentrated solar power, as I talked about before, is a form of storage for electricity. Um, dams, reservoirs for hydroelectric power that exist, these are big batteries, basically. And then they're batteries themselves. And so you either need storage, but hydrogen is also another form of storage. So when you have too much wind and too much solar, 
because part of the problem is you sometimes you have too much of it not too little other times you have too little when you have too much of it you can instead of wasting it like it's done today it's called shedding instead of wasting it you can use it to electrolyze water the excess electricity to produce hydrogen from water that's called electrolysis and that's a very straightforward technology so we would not use natural gas we would not have any gas in this whole system we would have no oil coal gas any type of burning will eliminate combustion as a form of producing energy i just heard that kevin de leon this california leader of the senate uh has proposed a pretty ambitious goal um sb 584 um would take us off the grid by 2045 yeah so California currently has a, a law in place to go to 50% clean renewable energy in the electric power sector by 2030. And Senator DeLeon from the California State Senate, he's proposed a law, and he's the head of the Senate, so he has some clout, he's proposed a law for the state to go to 50% by 2025, so push that up five years, and go to 100% for the electric power sector by 2045. So this is awesome, but we do need other sectors as well. We need the transportation sector, the industrial sector, and the uh, agriculture, forestry, fishing, and heating, cooling, because electricity is only 20% of all energy. So 80% is still not addressed. Yeah, and then there's a lot of fossil fuels used in agriculture as well in, in the fertilizer field. So there's a complex uh, environment we're in in California with so much agriculture. I did have one more question. About, you mentioned the grid, and I wanted to ask you, I was reading a book called The Grid um, that says our grid is a bit uh, aged and maybe doesn't handle these surges that solar and wind send down it. And some states are actually cutting off solar home, you know, individual users um, because they don't think their grids can handle the surges of new quick energy that comes down the line. Maybe I'm simplifying it because I'm not an engineer, but that's my best lead on what she was saying in that book. Well, some states are, have been cutting off solar on the rooftop, not so much because of the grid, but because, like, in, I'll give Nevada as an example. It was really weird because um, it was really the utility-scale solar groups wanted to have dominance in, the, in Nevada. And the, so they... To get dominance, they had to. They were able to orchestrate a law to against the rooftop solar Aww. industry. <laughs> that makes me sad. Sunny I have solar. Sunniest state in the lower 48. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the two sunniest states in the lower 48. <laughs> hey, uh, I wanted to switch the subject to uh, biomass. You know, WWS, wind, water, solar. I don't hear anything about you know ethanol or biodiesel. Now I got friends who are really involved with all that and it's kind of intriguing you know i mean the idea that okay sure you emit carbon dioxide when you burn that stuff but you suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as those plants grow so what do you got against biomass well we're looking at it from an air pollution and a climate point of view and when you burn biomass or biofuel like a liquid ethanol or methanol or just wood chips you're creating pollution that affects people's health and it doesn't matter if it's gasoline or ethanol it's actually we did a study looking at the difference between gasoline and ethanol and human health and found that like in a place like los angeles you actually increase the ozone formation about nine percent with ethanol burning ethanol instead of gasoline and over the u.s there's some places you can reduce it like in the southeast u.s but overall in the u.s it's about a four percent increase so there was no benefit in terms of human health of burning 
ethanol as a fuel compared to gasoline. In fact, it was slightly worse, but it was even worse when you looked at the upstream production of the fuel because you can't actually pipeline ethanol around. You have to transport it in trains, trucks, or barges, which all run on diesel fuel. So the upstream production of the fuel actually put out huge amounts more uh, particulate matter in particular, including black carbon, which is the second leading cause of global warming. So when then if you go back to look at the climate impacts of something like ethanol, you really have to look at how much energy it takes to actually grow corn or whatever fuel you're using to then cultivate it to fertilize it, to water it, then to transport it to the refinery, to refine it, and then transport it from the refinery to the end use. And when you add all that up, uh, several studies show uh, there might be still a 5% benefit compared to gasoline in terms of carbon, maybe a 10% in the best case if you're using just regular corn ethanol. But some studies show worse. Okay, so it depends on there's some assumptions that go into you know how much emissions are associated with different things. So in terms of carbon, there's not much benefit in t with corn ethanol, and there's definitely a disbenefit with respect to health. So basically, it's a really good benefit to the farmers, but it's not a good benefit to solve it for solving the global warming problem. Because if you use a battery electric vehicle that's powered by wind, you're reducing 99% of all carbon and air pollution emissions, whereas a, f a biofuel vehicle is definitely not improving air quality one bit. And it may or may not improve air quality, improve, improve the climate problem. It, even if it does, it's just marginal. Here's a million dollar question, I'm sure, and people were asking it in the panel that you were on earlier. Um, we can't really do it just free market, even if you know the government stops uh, supporting innovation and adoption of these alternative energies. Um, is there enough momentum to carry us over the Trump road bump? <laughs> Let's just call it that. Or is it really a wall? Sorry to use those metaphors. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to be optimistic. And I think certainly at the state level, there, a lot can be done and at the city level. And a lot is being done and commitments. I mean, as you mentioned, in California, we're now thinking of going to 100% clean energy. Hawaii is already committed to 100% clean energy electricity. Massachusetts has committed to 100% in the electric power sector. So, I mean, there is momentum building and we have cities and we have companies that are all committed regardless of the federal government. And I should point out that although Obama was very favorable to clean renewable energy, you know, he wasn't in charge, of, his party wasn't in charge of the Senate or the Congress for most of that time. So not much was actually done. It wasn't, there weren't a lot of aggressive measures actually put in place at the federal level. There were tax credits that were good but they still seem to be there. And so it could be that we could actually still advance at the state and local level, even though the federal government's gonna be even worse than it was before in terms of trying to solve these problems. Something I've always wondered though is, you know, these fossil fuel companies seem to be having an inordinate impact on um, the politicians thinking and, and acting. Yeah. Um, but why aren't they investing madly in the future um, of these technologies? Because they seem to be taking uh, hold so well economically, um, or are they? And they're just playing two sides of the game, pretending there's no climate change and putting out misinformation while on the other side, are they really investing in, in solar and wind? Well, I think for a while there were some oil companies in particular, maybe Shell and also re oil refinery companies like Chevron, that they had, they invested a small amount of their budget in either clean renewable energy or like in the case of Shell, solar in particular, BP also had a, like a solar branch. 
But, you know, these have all mysteriously disappeared, and Exxon never really even pretended to doing anything. Uh, but I would point out that even in the case of those companies that did invest a little bit, that was such a small portion of their companies, and it was really all for show, because they used that as, you know, 99% of their advertising is trying to be clean. But, in fact, it was such a small portion of their budget, they, was, they weren't really sincere. They I call think, that greenwashing. Yeah, greenwashing. And, you know, a lot of, some automobile companies have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really a, an advertising ploy in the, for the most part. You know, the bottom line is they, they're good at what they do, which is oil and gas, and they're not good at these other things, or so good, because if they were, they would have done this. But there, there are a lot of companies that are good at, you know, solar and wind that are in batteries and and are making progress on their own. And I just don't think these oil companies think they can compete. And they're working, they really have to satisfy their shareholders so they know they're getting the most profit out of what they're doing. And so as a result, they don't invest in things that are maybe um, initially less profitable because they're not experts at it. That's not their specialty. And yet we see a lot of, you know, infrastructure going into pipelines and tar sands moving and, you know, the fossil fuel industry is certainly not dead, but it's it's thrashing about in, in the death throes and making a lot of trouble. Yeah. So if we have time for one more, uh, so we need these clean, renewable energy technologies to take flight, but that raises a question about birds in connection with both wind and sun, especially concentrating solar. What's the latest report that, or, you know, the comparisons you give on those arguments, which I'm sure you've encountered millions of times. Oh, yeah. So this is my favorite argument to discuss because, yeah, people say that, and it's true, that wind turbines do kill birds and concentrated solar power, you do get bird kills when the birds fly through the path of the intense sunlight that's being reflected. But in the case of wind, let's start with that. Uh, you know, wind turbines reduce bird kills in comparison to the fossil fuels they're replacing. And this is the important key. So even though they do kill birds, they kill one-tenth the number of birds per unit energy generated as coal or oil or gas. So coal, oil, and gas kill 10 times more birds per unit energy by through not only through the air pollution and through the destruction of habitat through the mining. I mean, you might not know this, but... You know, in the United States alone, there are 2.3 million inactive oil and gas wells, and there are 1.7 million active oil and gas wells, and there are 20,000 new ones every year in the U.S., and this has to go on forever. The area that these require, including the well pads, the roads, the, roads, the storage facilities, they take up a size, the state of Maine, at least. And you're taking basically a state of state of Maine out of commission and destroying the habitat. Imagine how many animals, including birds, are destroyed just through habitat destruction. And then not to mention the air pollution. I mean, air pollution in the U.S. from oil, gas, and coal and other things that are burned cause 60 to 70,000 deaths per year prematurely and hundreds of thousands of illnesses of people. Imagine how many you know, millions of birds die from that. Comparison, so... So when you actually replace coal, oil, and gas with wind, it's a there was a study, a published study a few years ago that had a factor of 10 reduction of bird kills when you go to wind power compared to fossil fuels. But let's also look at this from an absolute point of view. The American Bird Conservancy and the Fish and Wildlife Service estimate that wind turbines in the U.S. kill around 400 to 600,000 birds per year. Sounds like a lot. But they also say that uh, between 10 and 50 million birds are killed by communication towers. 
about a billion birds are killed every year by buildings and about three billion are killed by cats just in the united states so in comparison it's a it's a red herring cars and probably cars there. <laughs> wow, that's a pretty stunning statistic. Um, anything you'd like to leave us with? It, it seems like you have really ambitious plans and you're very hopeful. Anything we should be looking out for in the next five to ten years that will be a sign that your plan is going into effect? Well, I think what I would like to see is more states and countries as well to commit to transitioning. You know, it's, I'm not so interested in which policies are put in place to actually get there, whether it's a carbon tax or if it's a feed-in tariff or this or that. You know, I'm more interested in commitments to the end goals and having those states or countries actually then do something to try to get there and have people, individuals, make changes on their own in their own homes. I mean, we can all change, you know, by either putting solar on our roof if we have one. Uh, using an induction cooktop stove, replacing our gas stoves. There's an article about your home on the Eco uh, site I, I read about, and there's a picture of it. You live in an extremely modern-looking solar home that is zero carbon. That is very cool. Well, it's brand, it's a new one, and I did, but I had a previous home in 2005. I changed it as well. I electrified it. It started with gas in there, and I got a gas um, heat pump sorry sorry I got rid of my gas heater for air and water and got an electric air source heat pump for air heating at the time they didn't have heat pump water heaters I got an electric resistance water heater but now they have heat pump water heaters which are more efficient in fact in the new home I have one of those I uh, got now a, an induction cooktop stove solar on the roof electric car so there's no gas for this new home there's no gas going onto the property at all and it's going and there's no fuel cost whatsoever because it's all running on solar on the roof there are batteries in the garage to uh, store that solar and i can use it whenever it's needed and did it cost a ton more than other homes you've put together i would say it's very similar oh. and well especially it's cheaper when you actually look at the long term so the upfront cost especially because i bought the solar rather than leasing it uh, the upfront cost was higher but it Definitely after like eight years, it'll be net negative. And I expect it'll last, the solar will last at least 30 years. So after that, it's all paid off and it's cheaper than a, if I had bought gas and used gas, especially if gas prices keep going up. Cool. Oh. Well, cool and very, very warm, too. Um, we want to thank you for stopping by our booth here at the Climate Conference at UC Santa Cruz. We are Planet Watch, and we've been talking to Mark Jacobson. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, Mark. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, okay, we're back live here. Uh, it was great talking with him for a little while yesterday. Uh, and uh, way back in the day when I was at NASA Ames, he came in as a grad student uh, working on a summer project uh, in our lab uh, for a while. And uh, so we, he and I go way back. Uh, and, you know, there's all kinds of, some people say he's controversial. And, okay, well, yeah, he is because a lot of people are, you know, saying, well, this is totally unrealistic and... You know, you can only do so much on an hour-long radio show here, but uh, we could get into all kinds of in-depth analysis about just how realistic or unrealistic all this stuff is. Most of what you hear out there, though, on the corporate mass media is about how unrealistic all solar and wind and anything to do with not oil, gas, and coal 
are, and uh, most of that stuff is really heavily biased with big, dirty money behind it. That's my opinion. Well-informed opinion, by the way. Anyway, uh, so we're going to move on to another uh, flamboyant speaker. He was everybody's favorite speaker at the conference yesterday, or a whole lot of people's favorite speaker. Very... uh, uh, defiant advocate of solar, defiant of the naysayers out there who try to poke holes from the sidelines. Dan Sugar, whom I've also known for years and years, he's one of the pioneers in the solar industry. Um, started as a power transmission analyst for PG&E, or that was one of his earliest things. But uh, then he became the CEO of Powerlight, which then became SunPower, which is now the one of the very largest solar companies in the world for photovoltaics, solar electricity. And his most recent thing until now was a company called Solaria, S-O-L-A-R-I-A. I got a tour of that plant uh, personally with him and my uh, graduate students at San Jose State when I was teaching environmental studies over there. And uh, they make focusing, uh, concentrating photovoltaics uh, with trackers. And now he's working with Next Tracker. He founded the company, Next Tracker. They've got a huge amount of solar already deployed all over the world. And uh, so nexttracker.com if you want information on that. But here comes the interview with uh, Dan Sugar. Welcome to Planet Watch. I'm so excited to have Daniel Sugar here with us. He is CEO of Next Tracker. He's made it into one of the fastest growing clean tech companies in the United States. And he's here at the climate conference at UC Santa Cruz to talk to us about solar energy and everything beyond that. So welcome to the program, Dan. Thank you for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. How does solar look from your seat, uh, having been involved with it for so many years? Well, you know, people have been watching solar grow and are, are like, well, when's solar really going to get to scale? And it's, you know, it's been happening. It's there. I've never been more so excited about solar than I am today. But solar is a fantastic story because the... Technology is um, the most reliable way to generate power. What many folks don't understand is that uh, there was actually more power generation capacity installed in the U.S. by solar than any other way to generate power last year. What's also really great about solar is in these seemingly divisive times, solar enjoys tremendous popularity because... um, Folks want, when polled across wide geographic spectrums, political spectrums, folks want their energy to come from the sun more than any other uh, way to generate power. And solar also employs more people than uh, almost any other industry. Today, there's over 250,000 people directly working for solar companies in the United States. Um, And then there's uh, over a million people involved in the supporting businesses. So... Uh, the costs are are in a great place, and folks can have energy independence, um, reduce their costs, and do good for the environment all at the same time. So, tell us the difference between you know putting something on your house and how that impacts the big picture of energy generation from clean power versus these giant things you see in the desert with lots of solar panels. Are we going to need both to make it to the goal of getting off of fossil fuels? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Both rooftop solar and ground-mounted solar are fantastic ways to, um, uh, you know, achieve energy independence, lower costs for consumers, and have choice for, for consumers. If you own your own home and you're in a sunny place and don't have too many trees, Putting solar on your roof is a great option. Um, 
But, you know, a lot of folks don't have those con set of conditions. Maybe they're in an apartment building. Maybe they, they're, they're not, you know, there's a, a mountain on the south side of their, their home or what have you. Uh, when you put the solar on the ground, it, uh, it's very, very affordable. Uh, you can put the solar on trackers that actually follow this, have the panels follow the sun from morning until the afternoon. That's what my company does. We, we, we're the global leader in manufacturing these trackers. Um, and we're, we're actually active from Australia through South America, uh, here in the States, and even in India, which is uh, one of the fastest growing markets and one of our, our largest markets. So the trackers help make more energy, which lower the overall cost and these projects are large. And one of the interesting things that's, that's happening in the States is that there's this whole movement in what's called community solar. So you can have a, a system installed and then within adjacent counties, customers can buy the energy through the wires. The utilities make a little bit of money on transmitting the energy, and everybody's quite supportive of that application. That's really cool. Um, I had one other follow-up question to that, and that is, how quickly would we need to ramp up solar to kind of meet the goals of keeping the planet cool? And are we on track to do that, given how quickly it seems to be coming down in price? We are on track, actually. Um, solar is the not only was more solar installed than any other way to generate power last year, but it's also the fastest growing uh, source of, of new energy. So last year there were about 60 uh, uh, gigawatts installed globally. Now to give you a sense, what is one gigawatt? That's like a, a, a large nuclear reactor plant or a, a large coal plant is about one gigawatt. So there were 60 gigawatts installed globally. Well, in the States in the last 30 years, there's only been a single nuclear, one gigawatt of nuclear power installed. So the solar has really rapidly gone to scale, and uh, it's a very exciting way for us to both solve the, um, the problems with uh, global warming while reducing costs for consumers and adding high-value jobs uh, in our economy and abroad. And don't forget taking damaging pollutants out of the air. Uh, we don't want to breathe that junk, right? <laughs> That's right. And an obvious question, though, for you, Dan, and this came up on the panel you were just talking on. Uh, okay, what do you do when the sun don't shine? <laughs> You had a lot of answers for that. Yeah, that's that's true. One of the myths about solar is that, you know, it's not reliable. Actually, the exact opposite is true. Let me explain why. Um, first of all, folks are up during the day, uh, so there's a lot more energy consumed during the day when folks are up, when the air conditioners are on, when um, agricultural customers need to pump water to irrigate their crops and so forth. So the solar sort of naturally correlates with that. And so much so that um, uh, there's, it's quite dependable as for meeting, you know, the daytime peak and, and partial peak. Solar and wind also play very nicely together because as the solar uh, power starts diminishing toward evening, the wind power is really, uh, that's when the wind is at its, at its peak and it c contains, uh, keeps going well into the evening. Now, as we think about more sophistication, I used to be a utility planner for Pacific Gas and Electric. And uh, as you think about a more sophisticated grid, um, you think about other resources that are available like hydroelectric facilities, um, transmitting power uh, between um, areas to help support each other in various times to 
can really bring more out of the resources. And then smart load control uh, appliances and uh, how we charge our electric cars and those types of things can really take full advantage of these resources. And then finally, and I know you have a big conference to go to, um, what is our grid like? Is it ready for um, the solar revolution? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, well, certainly it is. Um, to give you a sense of it, so, you know, nationally, solar's, you know, uh, a, a small percentage, uh, you know, just a few percent of national power generation. Whereas in California, it's quite significant. You know, it can be 10, 15 percent in the middle of the day, going to 20 percent within a few years here in California. In Germany, there have been days in southern Germany where the over half the grid is being powered by solar. So we can certainly we have got a lot of runway ahead of us. Now, by incorporating some of these smart control technologies, we can leverage, you know, basically the um, the existing grid without doing these huge upgrades. As we move forward, uh, we'll keep incorporating more battery energy storage and other technologies as complements to the solar power generation. Never been more excited about solar. Tons of uh, technological innovation before us that'll continue to reduce costs, create fantastic high-value jobs uh, across the country, and uh, enable us to accelerate a solar-powered future to today. Any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave us with as you head off into the climate conference today? Yeah, I, I really think um, you know a, a combination of renewable energies. It, it really solves the you know kind of our needs where we can you've heard energy versus or uh, excuse me um environment versus economy i would you know basically my all my experience uh uh proves that it's the environment plus the economy we can grow these high value jobs to lower costs at the same time we're solving you know environmental f issues i mean folks in any of any political persuasion everyone wants clean air, clean water for their for themselves and their, their kids and future generations. And this is a way for us to practically solve that today with uh, technology that was invented in the States and we should be able to grow it and really help um, solve energy needs both here and abroad. I mentioned in India, uh, India is the one of the fastest growing, most exciting markets. Uh, our company, Next Tracker, is very active there in India. And we're really excited that you know more power generation is being installed by solar in India than uh, coal plants right now. Well, Daniel Sugar, uh, CEO of Next Tracker, I really am happy you stopped by here um, at the Planet Watch desk here at the Climate Conference. Thank you so much for oh, being here today, to Rachel. Thank you, Ms. Thank you Joe. And thanks, and enjoy the day and the rest of the conference. Perfect. Thanks. And here we are at Planet Watch. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to reach us and ask us a question. Uh, Joe Jordan probably be the best one to answer it if it's an astronomy or science question and uh, any kind of general trivia you can ask him by emailing us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com we're also streaming live on Facebook at KSCO Santa Cruz so if you just type that in all one word you will find us and see some pictures we're also on Facebook under Planet Watch so you can look at the picture of Mark Jacobson's solar home beautiful solar home that's what 200 
2,000 square feet? 3,200. It's huge. (laughs) (laughs) And it's zero carbon. Very, very cool. Awesome. And we're going to be having future interviews with more of the people who are at the UC Climate Conference coming up in the next few weeks. So look for those interviews coming up on future Planet Watches right here on your public or private radio station. Yeah, just during the breaks at the conference yesterday, we got a total of six interviews. So that was just two out of the six. We'll play the rest of them over the next couple few weeks. Very interesting folks. Uh, We were able to get a lot more in-depth with uh, interesting things than they were able to do in their presentations. We also got to invite uh, Fred Keeley to be a future guest. He was very excited to uh, be invited in the future, so we'll have him on. He's a former assembly member um, from the California State Legislature, also one of the premier authors of some of the major conservation legislation in California. So looking very much forward to having him on as a guest, as well as Natural Resources Secretary for California, John Laird. I also made contact with Jerry Brown's uh, main policy science advisor, and uh, he and I are going to go through his press secretary to set up an interview, and possibly we'll get the governor of California on in a future show. So that will be very exciting if if we're successful. (laughs) Let's hope. I actually ran into Jerry Brown on an airplane once uh, at Dulles Airport and ended up hanging out with him during the flight a fair amount. Lucky you. (laughs) Yeah. He probably doesn't get a moment to himself. (laughs) So uh, we always end out the show the last 10 minutes with some trivia and science quizzes and uh, the answer to the previous quiz so why don't we begin with the answer to last week's science quiz and reiteration of the quiz just in case you are tearing your hair out or if you've never listened to this show before we should uh, reset the actually there are two questions that I've left hanging and one of them might be from two or three weeks ago and we forgot about it but the one I'm pretty sure we did last week was if you're standing in Anchorage, Alaska facing directly toward Washington, D.C., along the great circle, you know, the shortest path, shortest distance path towards Washington, D.C. The question is, what direction of the compass are you facing? In other words, what's the bearing of Washington, D.C. from Anchorage, or what is your heading if you are heading straight towards Washington, D.C. from Anchorage? And I said that no, it's not southeast, as you might think from looking at a regular old flat projection map. And here's the answer. Are you ready? And I did, by the way, I did say, uh, get a string and put it on a globe with, you know, one end at Anchorage and the other at Washington, D.C. and make it as straight as you can on a curved surface. And you'll see where the latitude lines, how they relate to the orientation of the string. And children, a globe is something that used to sit on your desk (laughs) and uh, sometimes is found in libraries. It's not Uh, a GPS. Not Google Earth. (laughs) Not Google Earth. And a a company named Replogal made lots of classroom globes. I think I know somebody who knows somebody who was involved in that company. Anyway, here's the answer. The bearing of Washington, D.C. from Anchorage, Alaska is, drumroll, about 10 degrees north of east. So it's east-northeast. It's actually north of due east. No way. And if you think about it, well, again, you got to look at that string. But, you know, up towards the North Pole, you're not very close to the North Pole Anchorage, but you're a lot closer to it than you are in Washington, D.C. And the latitude lines are curving fairly sharply there. 
Uh, and, you know, the, the, great, the shortest distance path cuts across the latitude lines in such a way that you're actually heading 10 degrees north of east. Now, as you continue to travel, by the time you get over into Canada very far, your bearing is now, at some point it goes due east, and then pretty rapidly it starts to head southeast, and then it gets more and more southeast for the whole rest of the track. And if you go the other way, you're looking over the Bering Sea. So. <laughs> yeah. And you said something about seeing Sarah Palin or something. I you can see Sarah Palin from here. <laughs> but now here is the other one. Uh, there's this great movie out, which I still want to watch. And uh, it's called The Man Who Knew Infinity. And it's about a true story of this amazing Indian mathematician who was just a child prodigy. His mom in India wrote to a great mathematician in Britain, you know, saying, I think my son's on to something, all this crazy scribbling he's doing. And the, she sent the stuff, and the guy said, oh, this guy really is amazing. And he brought him to England, where he then later died because of tuberculosis and not taking adequate care of himself. But the guy's name was Ramanujan. And he just, he was an amazing fount of mathematical prowess and wisdom. Anyway, uh, on his deathbed, uh, the, the great British mathematician was visiting him, saying, well, I came over here in a, in a taxi cab. The, the number on the cab wasn't very interesting. And here's the number. And Ramanujan shoots up in his bed and he says, no, that's a very interesting number. That's the smallest number that can be expressed in two different ways as the sum of two cubes. Now, that was the quiz that I left for you, was what is that number? Okay, so now you ready? The smallest integer that can be expressed in two different ways as the sum of two cubes is 1729. 1,729. But I'm going to still leave part of this hang until next time. Namely, what are those two decompositions into sums of cubes? In other words, A cubed plus B cubed equals 1729. And also, C cubed plus D cubed equals 1729. What, what are those two different ways of doing this? So we'll close the loop on that next week. Okay, yes. But, stay <coughs> tuned for next week when you can find out the answer. I had a very short nature note since we are Planet Watch and we talk about what's happening on the planet. And and even if you're listening in Columbus, Ohio, you might be interested to know that in the mountains of Santa Cruz, California, the robins have returned and the rufous-sided towhees are very active and the deer are all ready to have their babies. So um, spring has come, even though it's very cold for the, us Californians outside. It's been in the 30s at night. <laughs> um, nature doesn't stop reproducing, even though it gets cold. It keeps on its schedule. Um, some people have been observing that their trees are flowering earlier which can provide problems for the pollinators to get to them. So we'll see if that's another year of that. But um, given the springs that have never sprung before are out, the whole mountain is seeping and ending up downstream, we also have problems with roads. So spring is an interesting time. It's not normally this wet. So a little nature note is nature seems to be carrying on regardless. And what we will see, no doubt, in another month is massive wildflowers like you've never seen because mm. it's been such a wet year. Down in the desert, maybe. No, even in uh, the Carrizo Plain, Central California, not so far from where we sit, there will be poppies and lupins like you've never seen. Can't wait. Stay tuned. <laughs> so that's my nature note from all over. Um, Joe, you have time yeah, for another one yeah, before well, we go? This one's very appropriate for today's date. You know, it's March Eve, Eve, Eve right now. It's the third day before March. And so we're about to run out of days in February is the point here. You know, February's kind of short. You know, most of the time it's only 28 days like this year. <clears throat> Next leap year is going to be, what, 2020, I think. That'll be when it has 29 days. But did you ever wonder? I mean, did you ever even think that it turns out that the our 
colder, cooler half of the year is several days shorter than the warmer half of the year. In other words, from the September equinox around through the winter solstice and to the spring equinox, that period that we're in right now, it's like four days at least shorter than the time from the March equinox around through the summer solstice to the fall equinox. And it, part of it's because of February. I guess most of it is, actually. There's also some months that are 30 days, 31 days. That might all balance out, actually. So it's that February that shortens it quite a bit. Now, why is that? Is it Groundhog Day? <laughs> no, we it's already covered that. <laughs> that was a cross-quarter <laughs> day that's halfway between a solstice and an equinox. The next one of those will be May Day, by the way, beginning of May, not too far in the future. Is this a quiz, so don't, don't <clears throat> give yeah, me an answer? Yeah, uh, I think I'm going to make it a quiz. Uh, <laughs> And it, I'll give you a hint. It has to do with something we've actually talked about before on this show, the distance of the Earth from the sun, which is not constant. In other words, we're not going around the sun in a circle. It's an ellipse. And sometimes of the year, we're closer to the sun. Believe it or not, that's this time of year. We're actually closest in early January. Other times of the year, we're farther away from the sun. We're actually farthest from the sun right around the 4th of July, 4th or 5th of July. So, okay, uh, that's <laughs> that gives away almost half of what you need, even more than half. You're too but anyway, easy on them. But there you go. <laughs> but that's a fun thing to think about. Most people do not go around carrying in their head the fact that the, the warmer half of the year is actually not half of the year, <laughs> and it's longer than the colder half of the year. It, in does, our, it in doesn't our feel like it. <laughs> that's in our hemisphere, by the way. In the southern hemisphere, all the warm and cold is reversed. Right. Well, that's just about all the time we have for Planet Watch on another Planet Watch edition. We want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And Joe Jordan. And keep an eye on the sky. <laughs> thank you for Tom, being with us. And there's Tommy. <laughs> and, and Jason. Thanks to Jason. Thank you to Jason, our producer. We'll see you next week.